Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Okay, so Cornell, you can come forward so long. Um, most of you probably know Cornell already. He's been a member uh, here in Shofar Joburg for a good many years. And he uh, preaches for us from time to time. And I, I always really enjoy it when he, when he ministers the word. Uh, he's really a... Uh, a man of God who loves God's word, and and when he shares the word, his excitement and his love for God's word always comes through, and and also he's a, he's, he's, I think he's really got a good understanding of people and of human nature, and I always enjoy the insights that that God gives him uh, into our heart. So Cornell, over to you. We look forward to hear what the Lord has laid on your heart. Thanks, Henny. Thanks, Henny. Is it on? Yes. Awesome. Shout out to all the moms. I don't know if I can speak for everyone, but I personally would not have been here without a mother. (laughs) So really thankful. I'm just going to get set up over here. Okay, let's pray. Father, just thank you that we can gather this morning in the name of Jesus, like your word says and like Rochelle prayed. Thank you that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in our midst. And we just want to honor you this morning, Holy Spirit, for your presence here. We want to thank you that you are here, that we've got this immense privilege of experiencing your presence and your glory and your goodness in our lives. And This morning as we come, we open our our hearts to you, Holy Spirit. We ask that you will speak to us, Lord, today. I consecrate my mouth to you. And I thank you that as we read your word and as we look at it together, I pray that you will show us a new insight, God, Father, that you will help us to understand the truth that can sometimes be so simple yet so deep in your word on on a new level and that you'll help us to experience that in our lives. We honor you and we welcome you here as the guest of honor, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, so this book fascinates me, right? When when I became a Christian, I have to say it wasn't like I sat down and put next to each other all of the world religions and did an analytical study of them and decided which one makes the most logical sense and chose to follow that one. Rather, there was something very personal and spiritual to my conversion journey, even relational. The best way that I can describe it is that I felt God drawing me to himself. After I became a Christian, I did start studying the Word of God. I started reading it, learning about it, and seeing what it really says. And I found some amazing things. On an intellectual level, I find this book fascinating because It's like I can study it and every time see something new. It feels to me like I could read this word for my entire life and never reach the bottom of it, right? But more than that, I found something else. It's not just an intellectual exercise reading the word of God. It's experiential. The things that I read in here started manifesting in my life. I started experiencing the spiritual truth it contains, right? I started experiencing those things in my life, and, and it's, it's amazing. What I also learned, even though I would be, I guess, shy to admit that maybe I thought this way, was that the Bible didn't just fall from the sky, right? It didn't just 
land in its current form somewhere and someone found it or it wasn't someone who went into a forest or a cave or something and had this massive revelation and, and, and wrote all of it in one sitting. Instead, it was written by multiple people over hundreds of years in different geographical areas, in different cultural contexts, even in different languages. And yet we find in it one main story that accumulates in the life of Jesus Christ. I like what Tamaki says. He says that the Bible is full of these hyperlinks, right? Things pointing to elements of the story that we see repeating again and again and again. And some of them are put there very intentionally by the authors. If you read some of the Psalms and the things, I mean, I used to read the Bible and, you know, you read some stuff and you're like, oh, okay, that's cool. But if you go and study that, you realize that people were very intentional with the imagery and the symbolism and the things that they use. And unless you do that effort, you're going to miss some of that, right? But sometimes it's also placed there unintentionally. We see it manifesting in the lives of some of the characters of the Bible, these pointers towards some of these elements of that story. And amazingly, we even see it manifesting in our own lives. And this morning, I just want to have a look at one of those kind of elements, or one of these themes, which I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is the theme of the temple. Okay, So the temple, or a temple, is not something which is unique um, to Christianity, the concept of it. Other religions also have temples. In Islam, they've got mosques that point to their holy site of, of Mecca, right, which they pray to. In Hinduism, you've got temples, which they even see as kind of um, extensions of the body of the gods that those temples are, are there for. But the definition of a temple is, is a place of worship. It's a place where people go to worship God or the gods, and a place where people go to connect with God, right? And we also, in the Judeo-Christian heritage, had a temple, right? We read about it in the Old Testament, but you might notice that we're not meeting in a temple today. We're we're meeting in a school hall, right? Uh, Sometimes we meet in cafes as Christians. Sometimes we meet in people's homes. Sometimes we meet in halls, or sometimes we meet in churches, but we don't really have one single holy site that we go to. So how does that work? Now, I know that some, some denominations still have kind of holy sites and things. I remember being in Belgium um, one year when my, my wife was, was, was getting her master's degree, and we went to a specific church there um, from a de- denomination that, that still kind of gives a lot of um, attention to, to relics and holy sites and things. And this church was specifically called the Church of the Holy Vial, and what they believed was that they had a vial of blood um, or a vial containing some of the blood of Jesus, right? And we went into this church, and um, there was like, we sat, we sat down in the pews, and a, a priest went up, and he, he did like a, a little sermon um, in Latin, I think. I didn't really understand what he was saying. And, um, and then there was an opportunity for people to, to kind of walk up um, and, and, and you could stand over this, this vial and you, you could pray or, or, or whatever, or look at it, and then you could, you could go down again. And I remember sitting there and I was in judgment mode, okay? Because I looked at this and I was like, this feels like a tourist attraction. It doesn't feel to me like a church. And I've, I've learned a lot. Like, I, I, don't, I try not to judge other denominations and things because I'm very aware nowadays of my shortcomings, okay? And every time I've done that, it doesn't work out that well for me, so I wouldn't advise it. But that day, I was in judgment mode, and I was sitting there kind of a bit upset. And then there was a woman, a Flemish woman, sitting behind me. And I remember just hearing this woman starting to, to weep, 
bitterly, like starting to cry. And I remember looking around at her, and I'll never forget the look that I saw on her face. It was a look of desperation. Right? I don't know what that woman had come for um, to, to church that day, but I remember looking in her face and realizing that there was something in this woman's life that had happened that had pushed her to a point of desperation, and she had come to that church desperate to meet with God, desperate to connect with God and to, to get answers from Him. Right now, the beautiful truth is that because of what Jesus did, we can meet with God inside and outside church, right? We don't need to go to a church, but, but if we're desperate and if we're hungry, God will meet us where, wherever we are. Okay, so let, let's have a look at this, this concept of the temple. I think that if we were to understand the concept of temple, we actually have to go right back to the beginning, um, to the very first verses of the Bible. So read with me from, from Genesis 1. I think uh, it'll come up on the slides. Okay, so in the beginning, this is Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And here follows a procession of six days where God creates the entire known universe. Out of the, out of the void and the chaos, he brings order, and he starts creating different elements of creation, the sea and the dry ground and the animals. And then on day six, he creates the pinnacle of his creation, which is us, man. And then on day seven, he rests from his creation. But that's not all. In Genesis 2, from verse 8, we read, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. And it just explains the names of these, these four rivers and where they flow. And then again in verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God creates the earth and, and the land and kind of in the midst of this land he, he, gets the, he places this special area, right, this, this garden. And in the middle of this garden he plants these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he takes the man that he made, and he puts him in this garden, and he gives them a task to do, to tend and to keep the garden. Now, um, I think that the garden is an image of utopia. It's an image of paradise, right? The, the ideal state of man, the perfect state that we can be in, in perfect harmony with God, walking in intimacy with him, and perfectly provided for and protected. I know, like any is a mentor of mine, and he loves alliteration, so I aspire to be good at alliteration. So I've come up with the five P's of pre-fall pre human existence, right? So in the garden, man had provision. There were trees planted that were pleasant for sight and good for food. He had everything that he needed in terms of provision. He had protection. In those days, the animals were not yet carnivorous. God, the Bible says God gave them um, plants for their food, so he wasn't in danger of wild animals. There was nothing threatening him. Thirdly, he had purpose. He had a task, right? God gave him a job in the garden. You will tend and keep it. He was God's delegated authority to rule over creation, and God's, he was also representing 
um, creation to God. He had meaningful work. Fourth, he had perfection. Now, I've got no idea what it was like, but we know that the pre-fall creation was very different from the creation that we see today. After the fall, we have the curse, which, le- which means that things tend to chaos in our universe, right? Things fall apart. There's a book we read in high school called by, um, it's an African book called Things Fall Apart. I find it so you know, amazing, but things fall apart in our world. That's what we see. And I've got no conception for what it was like when things did not fall apart, but that was what the pre-fall creation was like. And fifth, and most important, he had presence, the presence of God. Every day, man walked in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day, and he spoke to God face to face. And Adam and Eve were naked, right? Symbolic of vulnerability. They were completely seen and known by God, and they saw him face to face, and they were not consumed. And contrast that to what we see later in the Bible, right? Like in the book of Daniel, where Daniel meets with, or he, he encounters an angel, the archangel Gabriel, who was not God, but was also a being who had glory. And I love the euphemisms used in the Bible, right? When it says, what happens when he, when he saw him? It says, he fell into a deep sleep on his face. You know what that means? <laughs> Can't handle the glory, right? We clutch out, like our bodies cannot handle it. We would die if we're exposed to the glory of God. But that was not the case in the garden because humans walked with God and they spoke with him in the midst and the cool of the day. But then we know the story, right? In the middle of the garden, you've got these two trees, the tree of life, whose fruit give eternal life. Very interesting that God did not tell man not to eat from the tree of life, whether he did or whether he, he did not. I don't know uh, whether, whether we ate or whether we did not. Um, but I just find that quite interesting. If we didn't, then clearly we didn't feel the need to which is an interesting thought. And then the second tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree representing taking the knowledge of good and evil into our own hands, deciding for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. And then we we hear about the serpent who comes into the garden, right? The, the, The deceiver, the devil. And he tempts man. He says to man, did God really say that you would die if you eat from this tree? Do you really think that God is trustworthy? Or don't you think things might be better if you, if you take things into your own hands, if you've got the ability to decide for yourself what is right and wrong? And we fall for it, right? We decide to rebel against God, to rebel against His authority, because we think that our authority in that place would, would be better for us. We choose to take good and evil into our own hands, and they, they eat of that fruit. And there's a consequence of that we read in Genesis 3 from verse 8 and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden then the Lord God called Adam and said to him where are you so he said I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself and he that's God said who told you that you were naked have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat then the man said, the woman whom you gave me, mm. yeah. the woman who you gave me to be with me. We have learned a lot over these hundreds of years, eh? thousands of years, eh, guys? Oh, I still make this mistake, but the, the woman who you gave me um, to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what, what is this that you have done? The woman said to him, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, and here he proclaims the curse. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And this is a really important verse. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Because God is just, he had to judge sin. And he had to put people, or then he put Adam and Eve out of the garden. And when he put us out of the garden, or when he put humanity out of the garden, it says that he put cherubim, which were like these heavenly, amazing beings, at the door to the Garden of Eden to guard it, right? So that no one would be able to come back in. And unfortunately, pretty soon after this, we as humanity, instead of finding that the decision that we had made is indeed better for us, we find that things start falling apart. Pretty soon, even amongst the, the children of Adam and Eve, the first murder takes place, Cain and Abel, right? And then after a few generations, the, the world actually devolves into the state where the Bible says that it was utterly corrupt and filled with violence to the point where God comes to Noah, a, a man who was blameless still in that generation. He says to him, Noah, I'm sorry that I created man, and I'm going to do a global reset. Build an ark, get your family in there, two of every animal, and then I'm going to send a flood and I'm going to wipe everything. I'm going to, I'm going to restart. And that's exactly what happens. Noah goes into the ark, God sends a flood, and, and he wipes out every living thing except for, except for what is in the ark. And there is kind of a, this restart. Then a few generations after that, we read about Abraham. Abraham, a man whom God comes to and says to him, Abraham, I'm calling you out of your people and I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to establish a covenant, and from your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. From you, I'm going to create for myself a special people, a people who can be known by my name, a people who are consecrated to me. Okay, and we read about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's the first one who's called Israel, where the nation of Israel is born, and then Joseph. And so starts this, this nation of Israel, the nation whom God calls to himself, the nation who is identified as the people of God. And Israel lives in the generation of Joseph. They go and live in the, in the land of Egypt, and they live there for a few hundred years. But then a Pharaoh arises that, that oppresses them, that makes them slaves in that country. And when they're slaves, they cry out to God, and they say to God, God, please deliver us from, from our oppression. Please deliver us from this land of slavery. And God actually raises up Moses, who would act as a deliverer for them and bring them out of Egypt. And he makes them a promise. He says, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt into your own land, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where you will be safe and provided for, a land where you can, where you can live and flourish. And, and, and that's what God does. Through mighty acts, he, he brings the people of Israel out of, out of um, Egypt and he brings them into the wilderness. Now in the wilderness, God gives, Egypt, God gives Israel a few very significant things. Right? On the one hand, he gives them the law, 
a way of, of structuring your life and your society in, 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 in a godly manner, a way of structuring society in a way that it will not fall apart. Right? And, and the law creates this very interesting tension in the Bible. Because even though the people of Israel now know what the right way is to live, what the right way is to structure a society, they continually fail to do that. And just like in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve chose their own way. We see the people of Israel and the leaders of Israel doing that time and time again. And there's, there's consequence to that. And the second thing which God gives them is the design of the tabernacle. The tabernacle literally meaning dwelling place. A temple where God's presence would dwell amongst the people of Israel. And I want to have a bit of a look at the design of the tabernacle because I think it's, it's very significant. Just um, put up that slide. Okay, it's a little bit small. Sorry for that. But you'll just have to trust what I say and check it afterwards. So the design of the tabernacle, it had kind of three main parts. Firstly, God gave the people of Israel the Ark of the Covenant, which was a box um, that was covered in, in pure gold. And this box represented the presence of God and the glory of God. And Israel carried it with them wherever they went. And this was a holy box, okay? If you touch the Ark of the Covenant, you died. That's what happened. And you can go read, like, that's what happened with, um, there's a story of, 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 of David. Don't have time to go into that. Don't get distracted. Okay. So the Ark of the Covenant represents the, the glory and the presence of God. And that is what Israel carried with them. And, and they had this Ark of the Covenant. It had some very specific things in there. It had the tablets on which God had written the, the Ten Commandments, representing the law and representing God's holiness. It had manna, which was, um, the Bible says it's the bread of angels that God sustained Israel with in the wilderness when they had nothing else to eat, representing his provision. And it had the staff of Aaron that budded. And honestly, I, I'm not sure what that represents. Okay, I, I don't know. It could represent God's deliverance because that was the staff that some of the miracles in Egypt were done with when he, when he brought them out. Me and Henny tried to, to talk about this, but I'm just going to say, theo- ask a theologian on this one. Okay, I can't. But it represents something very significant. And that is what was contained in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had a special place in the tabernacle. It was contained in the Holy of Holies which was this, this afgebakende, beaconed-off area, right? That was the holiest place of the tabernacle. And later in the temple, you also had the Holy of Holies, and not just anybody could go in there. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and he went in once a year to represent the people of God um, in front of God. And even when he went in, they used to tie a rope around his foot with bells on because there was a very real chance that when he encounters the glory of God, he would die. And they couldn't go in after him to get him out, so they would pull him out with this rope, right? Hectic. So the Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by a, in in the tabernacle it was by a curtain. Interestingly enough, this curtain had cherubim on it. Does that remind you of something? Maybe? And... um, And that was separated from the rest of the tabernacle, which was the holy place, which was still inside the tent. The holy place had in it the the altar of incense, which represents represents praise and worship unto God. It had the the um, seven-branched lampstand, the menorah. We believe it represents the Holy Spirit. It was also in the form of a tree. They they put like almond blossoms and, and things on it. 
and then it had the table of the showbread, uh, which also represented God's provision. And then you had the outer court, um, or the courtyard. And the courtyard is where the nation of Israel could come. In, in, the, in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest went. In the holy place, the priests um, went and ministered to God. And, and then the people of Israel could come to the courtyard. And in the courtyard, you had the altar of bronze, and you had the, the bronze laver or the sea, which was like a big dish that contained water. Now, the altar of bronze, I think, is something um, quite important. Because in Israel, part of their religious rhythm or their religious rhythm of life was the sacrificial system. Sacrifice was a big part of of Israel's religious practice. They would, on a regular basis, come to the tabernacle and make different types of sacrifices. They had a whole list of, like, different types of sacrifices that they would make, mainly around, or some of the, some of the, like, the mandatory ones, they were mandatory and non-mandatory ones, but the mandatory ones were around sin. And I think this represents something really significant because it says something about the way that God views sin. For Israel, when sin was committed, there had to be made atonement for that sin in blood. An animal had to pay with its life to make up for that sin. Right? And this is sometimes, I think even like we as modern humans struggle with the thought of the seriousness of our sin. But to me it makes sense because if God is just, if there is hope that one day the wrongs that we see in the world will be righted and that that, that justice will really be administered in fairness, then God has to punish every sin. He has to be the place where the box, box stops when it comes to fairness, right? Where he will punish every action. But that obviously creates a problem for us, right? Because if I look at myself, I also have sin. I also do things which deserve punishment. And Israel coming to, to the altar would have been so aware of this because they would make these sacrifices on a regular basis rhythmically, year on year, coming and, and making these, these atonement sacrifices for sin. And then you also had the sea, the bronze laver, which contained water, which is a place where they would view their, their reflection and where, um, where they would also be able to wash themselves. So the outside of the court was a place of repentance. It was a place where, where, of, of cleansing, right? Now, the tabernacle's history goes through a few stages, Israel have it with them in the wilderness, and they, they, they take it to the promised land where they pitch it at Shiloh. And then um, David, it gets laid on David's heart when he's king of Israel to bring the tabernacle to Jerusalem. But it also gets laid on his heart to build God a house, to make this a permanent structure in Jerusalem, the actual first temple. But God says to him, you, won't build my, you can't build my temple because you've got too much blood in your hands, but your son will build it. Okay, so, so Solomon builds the first temple, which follows the same, um, the same design, except it had some extra buildings and things around the outside. And now the Holy of Holies was separated by a door. Okay, and I find it really interesting the way that they decorated this temple, because the holy place was decorated with like palm trees and almond blossoms and angels, kind of the decorations of a garden. And I think that there is a parallel there. There's a parallel between what we see in the temple and the Garden of Eden. It's like a pointer, a symbol back to that holy place, to that place of intimacy with God. But there is a problem. The Holy of Holies is guarded. Right? There are cherubim on the door. It's not the glory and the presence of God is not accessible to the to the whole of Israel. We've got a representative, or Israel is a representative that goes in. 
But along with the symbol that we see of, of the temple, there was another line of prophecy in, 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 Israel, in Israel's history that was really important. That was prophecies saying that one day a king would arise in Israel, a king who would restore Israel, who would save them of their sin and redeem them and restore them to a place of intimacy with God. Even in that, in that verse that we read right at the start of the Bible, when the curse was pronounced, God said that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent and he would bruise um, his heel. I don't believe that that refers to the, gen- the general seed, like the nation of Israel, but to a very specific seed. Right? And then what we see or what we read in the Bible is that one day there were wise men in the east. I find this so fascinating, the story of the wise men. By the way, there were not three. We don't know how many there were. Right? My, my children's Bible said there were three, but I don't read that in the Bible. So there might have been lots or one. I don't know. No, men, more than one. But these wise men are in the east and they see a star. And I don't know how they knew it, but they knew that this star belonged to to a specific person, that there is a king born in Bethlehem. And they follow the star, and at the foot of that star, they find a baby. And they bring him gifts and worship him, right? And as this baby starts growing, people start realizing there's something different about this this baby. There's a story when he's 12 years old of his family going up to a festival in Jerusalem. And after um, the festival, they leave, and they find that he's not in, in in their party. And they go back to Jerusalem, and for three days, they look for him. And they can't find him anywhere, right? Now, it's Mother's Day. Like, imagine the the type of trauma that you must go through if you lose your child for three days. And eventually, they find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, asking them questions with the the rabbis, the teachers of that time, being fascinated by the questions that he's asking. And his his mother goes, Jesus, how how could you do this to us? How could you, you know, why did you do this to us? And he says, didn't you know that you would find me in the house of my father? And as he grows and eventually starts his public ministry at the age of about 30, we see him going around and doing these amazing miracles. We see him going around healing people. The deaf hearing, the blind seeing, the lame walking as he heals them, casting out demons, setting people free from the oppression of evil, effectively reversing the effects of the curse reversing some of the wrongs that we see because of the fall. But not just that, he also started making some pretty big claims. One of them we read in Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of the grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And I just want to pause there and go back to the history of the temple. So we know The first temple was built by Solomon. But because of Israel's unfaithfulness and a continuous turning away, a prophecy, or there was prophecy that God would would allow Israel to be plundered and to go out into exile for for, for multiple years. And that's eventually what happened. Babylon comes and they plunder Jerusalem. They they destroy the temple and they take Israel out into exile um, for multiple years. And Israel are again in this place of exile and they're longing to go back to their homeland. They're longing to go back and to rebuild the temple, to regain their identity as a nation, right? And when um, God speaks about why this happened, part of what he says is he says that you did not honor my Sabbaths. 
You did not keep my law in my years of jubilee, therefore I will give the land rest. Right, so the Pharisees would have taken the Sabbath pretty seriously because they've read about the consequences of not doing that. Then from verse 3, answer them, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what, this, what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying here is that he is God. The Son of God, God in human form, who has come down, the anticipated Messiah, who will save Israel from their sin. We read again in John 2, from verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money, right? Because if you're coming to the temple, you don't want to bring your sacrifice from your hometown. It's a lot easier to buy it there. This whole kind of economy around sacrifice had started um, in the temple. But then it says, so he made a cord a whip out of cords and drove all of the temple court, drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. The Jews then responded to him, "What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Right, you're messing up our nice temple religious stuff. Right, we, we've got a way of doing things here, and you're you're doing this. What authority are you doing that on?" Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, which was the one they rebuilt when they came back from Babylon. And are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. For all the good that Jesus went around doing, the healing of people, the deliverance of, um, from demons, restoring people emotionally, restoring people to God, reversing the effects of the curse, he also was quite critical of the religious crowds of those days, the sects of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he said to them, guys, even though you keep the letter of the law, you miss the heart of it. And he called them, Hypocrites for doing that, and they hated him for that. They hated him, and they, they plotted against him, and eventually they arrested him. They falsely accused him. They beat and tortured him, and then they crucified him because of that. And his followers were, were taken aback by that, right? Their king, they actually believed that the Messiah would be a ruling and a reigning king who would deliver them from, from the oppression they were experiencing in those days, which was the Roman rule, and now Jesus is dead. He died on a cross. But it wasn't in vain. You see, the prophecies said that the Messiah had to suffer and die. Because just like Israel would come to the temple, and year after year they would bring sacrifices to make atonement for their sin, and even though they had to bring like blemishless lambs, those were not perfect sacrifices. So they had to do that over 
and over and over again. God had prophesied that the Messiah would suffer and die as the perfect sacrifice. The spotless lamb. The one who was without sin. The one who least deserved to take punishment. Would take the punishment that all of us deserve for the sin that we commit. And make atonement once for all. That is why we don't have the sacrificial system anymore. That is why we don't have to slaughter cows here on a Sunday morning. Right? Because Jesus has made atonement for our sins. And when he died on the cross, something really significant happened. In, in, this, in, the, in the second temple, there was not a door separating the Holy of Holies from, from the rest of the temple. There was a veil with cherubim on it. And when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that that veil tore from the top to the bottom. It tore. God tore it. The separation that kept the presence and the glory of God from the people was removed. And now because of what Jesus did for us, we can enter into the holy place again. We can walk in a place of intimacy with God. We can be restored to relationship with Him. And after Jesus died, after three days, we know that He rose from the dead, right? The ultimate effect of the curse, death itself, to dust you shall return. Jesus defeated death and he reversed that so that we, like he rose from the, death, from the dead, can also have eternal life. But bef- and then, then he ascended to heaven. He ascended to God and it says now he sits at the right hand of God and he makes intercession for the saints. But before he left, he gave some instructions, right? He, met, he, he spoke to his disciples again and he gave some instructions. He said to them that now they were to go out into all the world and make disciples of the nations, teaching them to observe all that he had taught them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he said, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, we don't need to go to the temple to experience the presence of God anymore because we are carriers of the presence of God. The Bible says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and we together as living stones are being built into a house for God. That's why we can go out and we can spread the fragrance of Jesus. We can spread his presence. We can gather like we do here today and know that where there are two or three of us or more, God's presence is there in our midst. The separation has been removed. But there there is also um, another part to the story. A, another image that is used for the church or, the, or us who follow, um, who follow Jesus is, is that of a bride. Right? Jesus says that w- when he left, he, he left us a, a promise that he would come back for us. That one day he would return and he would reclaim his bride. The image is that of us being engaged to Jesus and one day awaiting this, this marriage ceremony where we would be reunited with him. We would be brought back into a place or into a, into a, a perfect place of, of intimacy with him again. And we, we, we know that is, that is coming. We wait for that. The day when Jesus will return and when, he will, when we will be married to him. Right? That's what the, Bible, what the Bible says, that we've got this hope 
And I find the imagery really beautiful um, in, in, in Revelation when it talks about what will happen or what it will look like when that happens. It says that after the, the marriage ceremony of the Lamb, God is going to establish a new Jerusalem, a new city. And in that city, there is a throne of God. And from the throne of God, there is a river that flows, that, that feeds all of, the, all of the trees and the plants in the city. And next to that river grows the tree of life. And there's no temple in that city because God's presence inhabits it. It's a garden city. It's Eden restored. So the Bible starts with a garden where we lost paradise. And the Bible ends with a garden where God promises that we will regain it. And it's not because of our actions, right? Or of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did. And because of what God won for us through Jesus. So maybe you're here this morning, and, um, and a lot of what I'm saying is, is new to you, right? I, I, I want to apologize because I think I did a, a helicopter flight, and I gave a lot of small insights into actual deep theological um, things. But I, I just want all of us to stand, by the way, please. And the band, the band can come up. But maybe you're here this morning and, you know, right at the start of the sermon, I said that when I became a Christian, when, when, I, when, when, when I came to God for the first time, there were, it was not just an intellectual exercise. It was not just something intellectual that happened. There was, there was something very personal and relational to that. I experienced the, draw, the drawing of God on my heart. I knew in that moment that God was just drawing me to himself again. And this morning, maybe you're here and you're experiencing that same thing. It's hard to explain, right? You might feel a little bit like, is it real? But you know that you know that on your heart there is this tugging, this tugging that God has placed there, saying that he wants you to come back to him. You see, through the sacrifice of Jesus, God offers us forgiveness. He offers us a life with him. He offers us a restoration to relationship with him, but we should not take that lightly. We still need to enter into the holy place. Okay? We need to come to Jesus and accept the free gift that he gave us. And it's going to change our lives, guys. You're going to start experiencing the power and the blessings of the gospel. Your life will never be the same again. But if you're here this morning and you know that God is speaking to you, and maybe you've been in church for a long time, but you know that he is, he is tugging at your heart, I just want everyone to close their eyes. And if that is you specifically, I want you to raise your hand. Not as a, as a sign to me, but as a sign to God to say, God, I want to walk in that intimacy with you. Just raise it high. Thank you. And once, once you've raised it, you can lower it again. And I just want to encourage you that when God meets us, He meets us with His love. The beautiful thing about what Jesus did for us is it, it has nothing to do with our qualification to earn righteousness in God. It has nothing to do with our qualification to earn relationship with Him. It's Him that does it. So when we respond to that, we can be confident that He will forgive us our sins and that He will restore us to Himself. So to those people who raise their hands, I'm just going to pray and I want you to pray after me. I actually want all of us to, to pray together. So let's, let's pray. Father, 
I thank you that you have closed the gap that separated me from you. I thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus and through his blood that I can come to you. I ask that you'll forgive me my sins, that you will make me alive in Jesus, that you will help me to know the Holy Spirit and to walk in an intimate relationship with you. I leave the world behind, Lord. And I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Then there's just a second group of people here this morning. When I was listening to what God was saying to us in intercession this morning, there was a very strong word that came through on sanctification. Sanctification is the process that God takes us on once we're Christians to make us holy to bring us into right relationship with them it means we change right and that is not always easy sometimes it's painful sometimes we it's like uh, one of the guys who um who mentored me said sometimes it feels like open heart surgery right (laughs) you're there and you know your heart is getting operated on things are changing and god is doing it and it's not nice but it's needed Because the Bible says that God, Jesus is preparing His bride. He's making His bride ready for that wedding day. He's making us holy. And if you're here this morning, and maybe I just had on my heart that maybe you're going through this process of sanctification, but you're back in a place of striving where you feel like you can't enter into the Holy of Holies because of what you've done. Or maybe you feel far from God and you just... You haven't been connecting with Him. The amazing thing about that imagery in the Bible is that it's not us that tore the veil. It's God that tore the veil. It's God that opened the way for us to come back to Him. We cannot earn it in our own effort. And I just felt that if if you're here this morning and you want to respond to God and and, and say to Him, Lord, I'm I'm tired of striving. I'm I'm tired of doing it in my own effort. I've got such a desire. It's not... It doesn't mean that that, that we're lazy, right? I've got such a desire to experience your holiness, your goodness, your your power in my life, but I just don't know how to get there. If that's you, I also, I'm going to call the people who raise their their hands forward, but I also want you to come forward so that we can pray with you and just trust God that the Holy Spirit will unlock something in your hearts. And I mean, I need this too, guys. I'm not saying like preaching at you, like it's only the Holy Spirit that can do this in our hearts but that He will unlock something in our hearts to help us to understand that the victory has been won by Jesus. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.